0: Our sermon today will be taken from Obadiah chapter 1, verse 16 to 18. This is the word of God For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph aflame, and the house of Esau stubble. And they shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Emily. All right, guys. uh, We are taking a break from our sermon series through the book of John, and we're going to jump into the Minor Prophets. So if you know, the big series we're doing for the next year or two is going through the whole book of John, which is in the New Testament. But that could get monotonous. So what we want to do is we want to split it up and and do another series through the Minor Prophets. The Minor Prophets is the last 12 books in the Old Testament. We already finished Jonah, and now we're going to finish Obadiah. We've already had two sermons on it. So if this is your first time with us, you're jumping in the middle of it. Sermons on the Minor Prophets tend to be avoided. A friend of mine said... It's not recommended for a younger church plant. Why? Well, because sermons on the minor prophets tend to scare people away. Mostly because of the type of literature it is. It's called prophetic literature. And because of that, in the sermon, we're going to do a lot of Bible navigating. This particular sermon, we're going to go through different parts of the Bible to see the fulfillment of of these um, uh, prophecies in the New Testament to get the full meaning of it. But then, the content that we arrive at may not be the funnest thing to hear. May be a little challenging, maybe a little bit hard to swallow, but I believe it's a message much needed for God's people today, and it's in his word. So let's study it uh, with vigor. So three things I want to point out. One, the people God is addressing. Two, the warning God is giving. And three, the cup that God embraced. The people God is addressing, the warning God is giving, and the cup that God embraced. Uh, Pray with me before we begin. Father, as we dig deep into your word and a specific part of it that does um, warn your people, I pray that you give us not only the minds to comprehend it, but Father, be with our hearts, be with our assumptions, be with our preferences, be with whatever, be with us as we come in with all of whatever preconceived notions we might have about who you are. And let us try to take you in the way your word has revealed you and let your word be the authority over us. And we beg you for this mercy, especially in such a passage. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, point number one, the people God is addressing. Now, this point and the rest of this sermon, this passage... Um, it's best to take the long way around to answer it. Here's why. One, one goal I have in preaching is not only just to tell you the information, but to kind of give you feel and to teach you how to study God's Word, how to navigate through it, what does it mean to define God's Word by God's Word and not on our own. So I don't want to just give the answer out there. I want to help us familiarize ourselves with how to study the Word of God. Um, Two, that's why it's that's why going to take the long way around. Two, I want to cultivate a culture of critical thinking in us. I, I, I hope that you don't just accept everything somebody up front says. I hope you always demand clarity of how the preacher arrived to the conclusion he arrived in from the Word of God itself. So I hope to do that. And three, since this content is specifically difficult to swallow and accept, I want to make sure, especially for this sermon that what we hear today is not from me. And you are certain it's not my words, but it's the word of God in his word. So stick with me as we jump around a few verses, talk about the grammar, talk about the historical stuff. Um, We'll do it in a way that that I think is helpful. Um, But at the end of the day, I don't think this message is something we can easily accept if we think it be the words of mere man. So stick with me, with those three things in mind. Let's let's jump in. Okay. So first, to understand the passage, uh, we have to know who it is God is addressing here. Okay, who is God speaking to in our text? Remember, the context of the book is that when it was around the time it was written, Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, just got destroyed by a country called Babylon. This happened somewhere in 586 BC, and this book, uh, Obadiah, is is a book of warning. Who do you think God is warning? Well, you would think God is warning Babylon, right? The country that destroyed Israel. But surprisingly, up to now, God was not warning Babylon. He was warning another country, a country called Edom. Edom is Israel's neighboring country. Why would God warn Edom? Because after Israel was destroyed, instead of helping Israel, Edom, their neighbors, exploited them took advantage of them. Uh, While Israel was weak, they looted and stole from them, verses 5 and 6 says. They mocked them, verse 12 says, if you read uh, uh, the whole book. And verse 14 tells us, Edom even went as far uh, to capturing the people in Israel that were fleeing from the Babylonian captivity. So they were destroyed, some people escaped, and the people who escaped, Edom captured them and sold them to slavery. It's human trafficking. Edom exploited Israel at their weakest points. So God was upset. And, And what made it worse, if you read the book of Genesis, Edom and Israel were not just neighboring countries. They weren't just friends. They were actually family. Edom were the descendants. I think it's Genesis 25 and 26. Edom was a descendant of a man named Esau. So Esau had kids, and that became the country of Edom. That's why God refers to Edom in verse 18 in your passage, if you read it, as the house of Esau. And Israel's descendants, uh, uh, Israel was descendants of a man named Jacob. That's why God refers to Israel in verse 17 and 18 as the house of Jacob. Who is Jacob and Esau? They're both sons of Isaac. They're brothers. So Edom betrayed and exploited and ravished their own brothers. And also who happened to be the people of God in the Old Testament Israel. So God, of course, was upset. And up to verse 15, verses 1 to 15, God warned Edom, you will fall. You will pay for your pride. You will pay for what you've done. Justice will come. But now, in verses 16 to 18, or really 16 onwards, the recipient of God's warning surprisingly switched. God no longer was warning Edom. It changed. To who? Surprisingly enough, God now started to warn Israel. We'll get to why, but first, how do we know that God now is starting to warn Israel and no longer warning Edom from verses 16 onwards? First, okay, let's get to the grammar a little bit. First, by the word you in verse 16. If you read verse 16, uh, there's a word you there. Um, Let me me just read that, that verse again. Verse 16 says, For as you have drunk on my holy mountain. Now, the you there really is, should be translated as you all. Okay? In the Hebrew, uh, there's many ways to say you all, but in the English, you and you all kind of mean the same thing, so the ESV translates it as you. In Hebrew, just like in Indonesian, there's a lot of ways to say the phrase you all. We have, we have a few phrases to say you all. Kalian semua, that's you all. Saudara-saudara uh, sekalian. That's you all, lupada. That's you all, right? There, there's a lot of ways to say the phrase "you all," but in English, it's translated. All every single one of those translated as "you" or "or you all." What's important to note is that every time the word "you" from verses one to fifteen happens, which is actually thirty-three times. The phrase in Hebrew is always the same phrase. So imagine if it was written in Indonesian. It's like every time the author addresses the reader, every time the author says you or you all uh, 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 from verses 1 to 15, he always uses the phrase kalian semua. Kalian semua, kalian semua, kalian semua 33 times. But all of a sudden, in verse 16 onwards, the phrase the author used changed. All of a sudden in verse 16, he doesn't say kalian semua. He says saudara, saudara sekalian. Now, a change like that in Indonesian wouldn't matter that much. And in English, it wouldn't matter that much either. You're still addressing the same person. But in Hebrew, when a change like that happens, it means that the person you're addressing also changes. And verse 16, the phrase changes, and the reader starts to think, who is he talking to now? It's no longer Edom, but it's Israel. How do you know it's Israel? Second thing, very quickly, if you look at verse 18... God addresses the house of Jacob and the house of Joseph. Uh, Israel at the time were divided into two kingdoms. Uh, and throughout the Old Testament, you see the, the house of Jacob is, is a way to address the southern kingdom of Israel. And the house of Joseph is a way to address the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay? So, so the you changes. So, who is God addressing the house no longer? Edom. It's somebody else because the, the, the you all phrase change. And we see in verse 18, he's addressing the house of Jacob and the house of Joseph, who is Israel. So God is redirecting his attention from Edom to Israel. Okay, great. What does any of that have to do with me? I'm not an Israelite. I'm Indonesian. I'm American. I'm Puerto Rican. I am whatever I am, right? Um, What does what God has to say to Israel back then in 500-something B.C. matter to me, 21st century Jakarta? Well, I remember I said in the introduction... This is prophetic literature. It means that we have to understand it in the way the New Testament fulfills this prophecy. So let's, let's look into that. Unless we see how the New Testament fulfills this passage, we won't know who Israel actually is. What does God mean when God says Israel? Okay, let's go to Hebrews chapter 8, verses 9 to 10, which is in the New Testament. This is God addressing Israel. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. That means not yet here. It's coming. When I will establish, uh, so the day is, 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 the day is now, uh, this is talking about Old Testament, saying the day is now coming into the New Testament. When I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Okay, so Israel are those who are somehow a part of this new covenant. This is not like the covenant I've made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and bring them out of the land of Egypt. Who did God take out of Egypt? Israel? The actual Israel? This is not like that. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So there's another Israel? I will put my laws into their heart, write them in their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Okay? Okay? It's confusing. The one, the one thing I want us all to get is that Israel are partakers of this new covenant. That's who Israel is. That's who God's people is. Well, well, well what is this new covenant? Who partakes in it? We continue in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 13 to 15. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, means the Old Testament, to purify yourself from the sin. The Israelites would kill Animals. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Okay, so Jesus is in there somewhere. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a, what? New covenants. So that those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance, since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Complicated stuff. All I'm saying... Israel is not just the biological people of Israel. When God says Israel, it's referring to all of his people. Not only God's people in the Old Testament, but also the church in the New Testament. God's people in the New Testament. All of God's people. So when God says you in verse 16, yes, back then he's referring to Israel, but if you take this prophetic literature as a whole, who is it referring to? He's referring to God's, his own people who have received Christ as their savior. You see? Who has, who is a part of this new covenant, which is the blood of Christ. So, so when God says you, yes, he's talking to Israel back then, but he's also talking to the church. He's talking to you and me sitting here today. The warning here isn't just for Israel back then, it's for 21st century church as well. It's relevant for you and I as well. This warning is God's warning to you and to me. So this is important. That's who God is talking to. What is he warning us about? Let's go to point number two. The warning God is giving. So now we we know when the you in verse 16 is Israel, not Edom, but Israel. Who is Israel? Everybody who has received Christ as Lord and Savior. So all of God's people Okay, including the church today. What is his warning for us? Let's read verse 16 to 17. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. Okay, verse 16, God is saying this is a warning for you. Listen closely. And what is Israel, God's people, described as doing? drinking on God's holy mountain. That's that's not much of a warning. <laughs> it's pretty nice actually, God giving us refreshments on a mountain. It's not so bad. But then you actually read the Old Testament and you see that drinking in the Old Testament throughout the Old Testament is actually a symbol of wrath <laughs> of God's judgment day. Let's let's look at a few verses. Job chapter 20 verse 21. Let's their own eyes see their destruction and let them, what? Drink of the wrath of the Almighty. Jeremiah 25, 15 to 16. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Last one, Habakkuk 2, 16. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink. Yourself and show your uncircumcision, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. Israel, God's people, is being called that you will receive God's wrath. But why? Why would God have wrath on Israel? Weren't they the innocent victims? God's wrath isn't supposed to come to his people. God's wrath isn't supposed to come to Israel, to the church. God's wrath is meant to be for the Babylonians, the Edomites, the the pagans out there, not the people in here, right? Well, no. Israel, actually, as the book was written, is experiencing God's wrath as the book was being written. How? If you read Jeremiah 25, you won't get into it, it clearly says, the reason why Israel was being destroyed by Babylon is because they sinned. The whole reason why Israel was captured by Babylon is because they disobeyed God's word. Israel also are recipients of God's wrath, not just the world out there, but the church too. So Here's what God is saying. Israel, church, our sin your sin, has also made you objects of my wrath, just like every other nation, just like every other people. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, just as Babylon has destroyed you right now, you've drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually and drink and swallow. So God in verses 1 to 15 warns Edom. verse 16, he switches, starts warning Israel, and he lumps Israel, he lumps the church, he lumps God's people with every other nation saying, you are no better. We've all sinned, Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then, verse 17. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. Okay, good. So yes, there's some people who escape God's wrath. That's true. But, but Israel and the rest of the nations were all lumped together, so God is warning them, just because you're a part of the nation of Israel, just because you're biologically an Israelite, a Jew, it isn't guaranteed that you're going to escape my wrath. And here's the warning for us today, church. This means the same for us. Just because we are a part of an institutional church, meaning that our names might be listed in the membership of a local church somewhere, that does not mean we're automatically, truly a part of God's people. Meaning, there may be some people in the institutional church who does not have a relationship with God. Who isn't a part of God's people. Who isn't, the term we call, use now, saved. Now you see this pattern not only here, but throughout the whole Bible. The distinction between um, not everybody in Israel is truly Israel. Um, is, is throughout Scripture. Let's look at a few, just so you're convinced. Again, this is not me, but from the Word. Romans 9, 6-7, to 7, Paul says, But it is not as though the Word of God has failed, for not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Just because you're biologically Israelite doesn't mean you're God's people. Hebrews three sixteen 16-19, For who were those who betrayed and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses, the Israelites? They rebelled. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? God was provoked. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Some of the Israelites died in the wilderness. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. Some Israelites will not enter his rest. Back then. Some of God's people who are included in this big nation of Israel will not enter his rest. Romans 10, 1 to 5 is another one. We don't have to talk about that. And what's really scary, the same warning God gave Israel back then, that not all of Israel is true Israel, is the same warning that Jesus gives the church today. Let's let's read one of his parables, Matthew 13 verse 24 to 30. It's a longer one, so stick with me and try to get the point of what Jesus is trying to say. He put another parable before them, saying, "'The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man "'who sowed good seed in his field. "'But while his men were sleeping, "'his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat "'and went away. "'So when the plants came up and bore again, "'then the weeds appeared also. "'And the servants of the master of the house "'came and said to him, "'Master, did you not sow good seed in your field?' How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Verse 30 is key. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. In the kingdom of God, there will always be wheat and weeds. This is just one of them. Another popular one. book of Hebrews, by the way, has five warning passages. Almost all of it talks about that. And one that you might know is Matthew 7. People say this all the time. Not everybody who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter kingdom of heaven. You've heard this is throughout the scripture. It's not just an isolated instance. So what does this mean for us? This is a warning that though one might have associated themselves with the church as an institution meaning that your name is a member at a at a local church somewhere that in itself does not necessarily mean you are part of the true church the true people of god just like not all of israel is true israel not all of those in the church is the true church again this is a warning passage so, if we don't feel at least a little bit alarmed, we're not studying it well. We should feel a little bit alarmed. That's the natural response to a message like this. It's scary. It brings God's justice and wrath to the forefront of our minds. And that extends to all those maybe members in institutional church as well. But here's the good news there is a people. There is a people that God describes in verse 17 who will escape God's wrath and be victorious who will be vindicated from all the wrongs that's been done in their lives, as the imagery of fire and flames uh, is, I think, in verse 17 or 18. They will have victory. They will be vindicated. Well, who are these people? And what makes them so special? And what do I need to do to escape this wrath, to be vindicated like them, to be part of the true church within the larger institutional church? Because the alternative is kind of scary. To be partakers of God's wrath is to be fully consumed by it, and we all have sinned in such a way to a holy and just, unchangeable God. To where if He truly is just and if truly is holy, we deserve every bit of it. Now, how how can we how can we be a part of these people who escape? Verse seventeen says, "Let's go to our last point. Point number three: the cup God embraced." So so far, we've seen the connections from the New Testament fulfilling a lot of things in our passage. The nation of Israel is really talking about the church as a whole. God's people is not limited to a specific race or ethnicity or nationality, but to all people. And, and, and yet, having our names listed as a member of a particular institutional church does not guarantee that you are truly a part of the true church, just like not all of Israel is true Israel. Not all of those in a church is the true church. So how do I become a part of this true church? What do I do to get there? Now, this is a question that may at first seem to be sowing seeds of pride, right? It kind of sounds like it's, it's kind of leading me down a path of pride because it sounds like the Bible is saying um, not only are the institutional church uh, better than everybody else, but, but there's this, this group of people in the bigger institutional church that's like even better than the better. They're like the bestest, you know, like they're like really, really good. And, and, and if this isn't seed for pride, I don't know what is. It kind of feels like that, right? But when you see the answer, it will not lead to pride at all. Well, what is the answer? How can we become the part of the true church within the institutional church, but yet not lead us to pride? Let's, let's go to one more New Testament fulfillment of our passage today. How do we become the true people of God, the true church within the institutional um, um, church? Come with me one more time to the words of Jesus in the New Testament, specifically to the garden before he was crucified. In this garden, our Savior showed more fear than he ever did in his entire earthly life. With the cross only a few days ahead of him, our Lord in this garden trembled. He fell down to his knees, and he begged the Father for something. What did our Lord and Savior beg the Father for? To do Luke twenty two verse thirty nine to forty two, and he came out and went and as was his custom to the mount of olives and the disciples followed him. This is before the crucifixion in the garden, of Gethsemane. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them. You can just see the stress in Jesus's uh, soul. He withdrew from them, about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing. Remove this cup from me. What cup do you think Jesus is talking about here? What is the content of this cup? What is it he was meant to drink? It is no other, as we've seen in our passage. It is the cup of God's full wrath. This is what Jesus was preparing to drink on the cross. This is what made him tremble. And who was that cup meant for, you think, originally? It was meant for those people in verse 17 who escaped God's wrath. It was meant for the true Israel, the true church. Because this is the only way we can escape God's wrath if we allow somebody else to drink it for us, namely Jesus. And this leads to no pride because it's not our own efforts that saves us because the true church didn't become the true church by being superior. They didn't avoid this cup because they were better. They avoided this cup because someone else drank it for them. The cup of God's wrath. See, this is the difference between the two categories, between the true church within the larger institutional church. The true church, the true church, comes to church on Sunday morning not to escape the cup of God's wrath, but they came Because they came to worship the person who drank it for them. The true church within the bigger institutional church, they serve at church, they join community groups, they're involved with other things at church, not to avoid the cup of God's wrath, but because they know that their Savior has drunk every last sip of it for them. That's the true church, and it leaves no room for pride. Here's the thing. I don't know why each of you are here today. could be for a lot of reasons. Maybe your parents were Christians, so we maybe think, I guess, I guess I'll do the Christian thing as well and go to church. Maybe you might come from an ethnicity that is closely related to Christianity. All my friends are Christians, so I guess I'll, I'll do the Christian thing as well. We may do it because we want to feel better and not so guilty about ourselves. Perhaps you did something this week that you're not so proud of and you thought to yourself Sunday morning, boy, I need me some church. (laughs) I I don't know what the reason is. I don't know why you came here this morning or you want to be a part of a church, this church or any other church. But unless you allow Jesus to drink the cup of God's wrath for you, unless you receive what he did on the cross for you to pay for your sins, though no matter how Christian your parents are, no matter how linked your ethnicity is with Christianity, no matter how many friends you have that are Christians, no matter how many worship services you've sat in or ministries you serve in, unless you let him drink it for you, you may be listed as a member in a church, but you will never be part of the true church. If you're not alarmed, then we haven't studied this passage properly. Now, in the past, when I've preached on something like this, because uh, th- there's many passages in the Bible that talks about this, I went about it rather insensitively. I would, I would go up here and I would say things like, hanging out at church doesn't make you a Christian, just like hanging out at Starbucks doesn't make you a cup of coffee. <laughs> Okay, though the message wasn't wrong, unfortunately, because I preached it like that, insensitively, maybe a bit pridefully, the hearers left the room with the wrong implications. They, what they think is, oh man, I, I can't just hang out at church. i got to do more things than just hang out. i got to serve. i gotta, I got to do this. i got to do that. i got to give more. That's the way I can be part of the true church because of the tone I delivered the message in. But that's completely the opposite application. It's not to do more. It's to receive what's been done for you. You can't be part of the true church by doing more. That's a total opposite. If you leave here realizing, if you leave here thinking that by doing more, I can be part of the special true church within the bigger institutional church, we've missed the whole passage. But if you leave this room realizing that you'll never be able to do it on your own, ever, and receive the fact that it's been done for you. It is finished, Jesus said on the cross. Then, then you got the point. Now, as we end, I want to point out a few things. I want to close with six very, very short implications to what we just talked about. So we we talked about there's this institutional church, and within it, there are those who has allowed Jesus to drink the cup of wrath for them, which is the true church, Here are the implications to that. One is the obvious one. This understanding should make us truly stop and think, even sometimes stop from our serving at church and think, am I doing this to earn my salvation? Am I doing this to become the true church? Or am I doing this because Jesus has drunk the full cup of wrath for me? Stop and think that. Second, if you are in Christ, if you have received him, this understanding should strengthen the bond that you have between other members of the church in your local church. Because this means there's a greater tie that unites all of you together. And that what unites you isn't the banner of CCC, it's Christ How far you decide to go for one another, how far you decide to love one another, how much you decide to forgive one another, be patient with one another, extend mercy to one another, should not be driven by how committed you are to CCC, but driven by the extent of your commitment to Christ. He's the one that unites you, ultimately. Three, this understanding should strengthen your bond with Christians in other local churches. Because now you see that although you're members of different local church- churches, there is a tie forged between you and them beyond the banners of your local churches. Because before they're a member of another local church, they are first and foremost your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you not see that you and them are actually part of the same true church? And though serving and members of different local church, which isn't a bad thing, local churches are instituted in the New Testament, it's a great thing. And Though you're serving in different places and members at different places, it should never separate you because you're bound together by the blood of Christ, no matter where they are. Love them, care for them. Fourth, it should increase your passion for the gospel being preached at your local church. This means you can never assume that everybody sitting in your church are all truly part of the true church and they truly have received and understand the gospel. First of all, the gospel should be central because it's central to the Bible. And anytime you want to preach the Bible, you've got to get to the gospel or else you're not really preaching the Bible. That's clear. Second, mature believers need the gospel. It's not that you've graduated from Christianity 101 and you don't need the gospel anymore. Every Christian needs the gospel just as much as those who aren't in Christ. But third... You need to make the gospel central because there may be people in your church that hasn't received it, don't know it yet, don't understand it yet, don't grasp it The gospel should never be assumed, always explicit. Fifth, this means that you never really leave church. Yes, you leave the local church building. Yes, you leave the congregation you worship with on Sunday morning. But you never really leave church because you are the church if you're in Christ. You are the true church, also called the organic church, is another way to say it. And that your life from Monday to Saturday represents the church, the people of God. The church follows you because Christ is in you. Six, lastly, it makes you view God's wrath differently. God's wrath is often something we want to avoid, something we don't want to talk about and minimize. Let's just talk about Jesus' love. Let's not talk about God's wrath. But now you see that the more you minimize God's wrath, you minimize Jesus' love. Because the extent to which you minimize how awful the cup of God's wrath is, is also the extent that you minimize what Jesus drank for you on the cross. His wrath was awful. It was terrible. And Jesus took it all. In other words, if you say God's wrath isn't that bad, you're saying, what Jesus endured on the cross for you also wasn't that much. You minimize God's wrath, you minimize the love of Christ. He loves you. He drunk it all. He covered you from all of it. So let's end here. Quick summary and end here. I hope the Lord gives us the courage to ask ourselves the hard question, am I just part of the institutional church or am I actually part of the true church who has received what Christ has done for me? And if you have received what Christ has done for you, remember your bond with Christians in CCC is forged forged by something much stronger than your membership at CCC. Your identification with Christians in other churches is listed in a book much greater than the membership list of your local churches. Remember that the gospel should never be assumed in your churches. Remember that your life from Monday to Saturday is a representation of the church. And lastly, never minimize the wrath of God. It's heavy, it's horrific, and it's infinitely awful. But your Savior loves you enough to drink all of it. I want them, Father, he said in the garden. I want them so bad. And if there's any other way, please let this cup pass from me. It is too awful. But I know there isn't so I'll drink it all for them. I'll drink it all. Let's pray. What amazing endurance of love and commitment and faithfulness you have, O God, to your people. That you would come down, descend, become flesh, Climb on a cross and drink the wrath meant for us. The wrath we have accumulated as we sin and are disobedient against you. And Lord, the only way we can escape what's justly done, what's justly due to us, the only way we can escape that is not by doing more churchy things, it's not by accumulating more points but it's by realizing that you drunk it all for us and we can never be good enough. And now we cling to you. And this doesn't make us lazy Christians. This doesn't make us people who take for granted your mercy. But it drives us to be united with each other by a bond stronger than any local church. It drives us to love other Christians and other churches because we are one and together in the true church bound by the blood of Christ. It makes us never want to leave the gospel as Christianity 101, but always embrace it to the day we see you face to face. And Lord, it makes us realize our responsibility as Christians to live it out because we are in you the true church. And Lord, it will never make us shy away from the reality of your wrath and at the same time realize just how magnificent your love is, Jesus, who would drank every last bit of it for me. May this love change our hearts, and if it is changed, may it continually grow us, that we may bear true spiritual fruit as those drenched in the love of the Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.